Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. If you listened to last week's Power Hour, you heard that we would have Robert Bryce on this week. Robert Bryce is author of Power Hungry, one of my favorite energy journalists, one of my favorite people in the world of energy, uh, intellectuals, commentary, etc. And we do have him on uh, this week. For those of you who haven't checked out Power Hungry, haven't checked out Gusher of Lies, his um, his you know two latest books on energy that have been published in the last five or six years, for sure, uh, check those out. Robert was the first ever guest on Power Hour, which I remember is in, in 2011. I was so happy to be able to get him because I, you know, I loved Power Hungry. I thought I, I really liked Gusher of Lies and I loved Power Hungry. I remember when Power Hungry came out, just whenever there's a new Robert Bryce book, you know you're going to get tons of really important facts and, uh, and insights and stories and that that certainly disappo- didn't disappoint. And for a long time, I used quite a bit of the material I used. I got uh, from Power Hungry. Anyway, I had to thank at the time. I should say Robert Bradley of Institute for Energy Research, who's been on the show a couple of times as well. Rob uh, has been just a great supporter of mine very early on. I think he's he's one of the he's really the first person in the energy community to be excited about the idea of someone coming at energy from a from a philosophical perspective from a perspective of let's let's carefully examine the method by which we're thinking and and get that in order and also let's let's think about the value issues let's make sure that we're we're going after the right things and that we're not inadvertently accepting a lot of you know either primitive assumptions like um you know nature you know that 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 man's primary well-being depends on the good graces of nature and the weather of climate. Let's let's make sure that we really have the most up-to-date, rational, objective, true, um, basic basic uh, views of the world, and, and let's make sure that everything is aligned with what's going to benefit human life. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying uh, Rob was a great ally from the beginning, and I thought, who do I want on Power Hour? And I said, number one person I want is Robert Bryce. And Rob emailed him and probably said something like, this is a good guy. And Robert Bryce, much to my happiness, agreed. And now he will be on today. And today we're going to discuss uh, the topic of several of the chapters in my upcoming book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, uh, which is energy progress. What is actually happening in the world of energy? If you read an article in the New York Times, you might get one impression if you look at, if you survey uh, the reality of the situation, if you look at the big picture statistics, and then if you look in depth at each of those technologies, you'll get a different picture. And that is the picture you'll get on today's show because Robert Bryce has been t- doing tons uh, of research, including for a new book, uh, which is coming out soon, which we will talk about. And no reason to miss it. Stay tuned, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us again, the first ever guest on Power Hour, Robert Bryce. Robert, welcome back to Power Hour. Hi, thanks, Alex. Glad to be back with you. All right. So we're going to talk with you about the future uh, of energy, which is a topic I've been writing about this week in my book. So it's, it's very fresh in my mind and, and lots of, of questions came to mind. Uh, just to remind readers from the past, you uh, when you came on the first episode of Power Hour, um, the book Power Hungry was it wasn't brand new, but it was it was fairly new. So hopefully everyone got a chance to look at that. Uh, if you didn't, for sure go to Amazon and get Power Hungry. I I consult that all the time, and I, I was consulting it last week just to give people uh, a sense. So that's that's great stuff. Um, but then in the years since, you've lo- written a lot of interesting articles. And one of the themes has been, and I've, I've gotten to hear you speak a couple times, one of the themes has been that there's an exciting energy future, at least I've taken it this way, but that a lot of it 
is not what people expect. And I remember a couple of years ago, um, I saw you at Manhattan Institute and you told the story of Vietnam. Can you tell the story about Vietnam and energy? Um, well, sure. And I think it, it folds right into what is the future of energy. Um, at that time, as uh, memory serves, when I, I was using Vietnam as an example, because in the previous decade, um, and I think it was from 2000 to 2010, the country that had had the single biggest increase in percentage increase in CO2 emissions, single biggest percentage increase in coal consumption, and single biggest increase in electricity generation was Vietnam. Now, that is no longer true today. Indonesia and Thailand are, are in the mix for those, you know, over a longer period of time. But Vietnam continues to be one of the countries that on a percentage basis has seen the biggest increase in CO2 emissions. It's also rapidly increasing its electricity generation. But so now let's fast forward to this idea of what are the fuels of the future and look at, uh, and in fact, decisions made just a few months ago by the, the uh, Export-Import Bank here in the United States to deny funding for a, a proposed coal-fired power plant in Vietnam. Well, coal is the story of today. Here in the United States, we're really bombarded with the shale gale, and it's important, incredibly important, what's happened in the U.S. with natural gas production, with tidal oil production, etc. But the global energy story of today is coal, and that's the story in Vietnam. Oh, it, it, the IEA just recently projected that by 2018, global coal use could, on a par-value basis, on a BTU basis, exceed global oil consumption, which is just an astounding uh, possibility. The last time oil use exceeded coal use in the, in the, in the United States was in 1949. So... The future of energy, to be very blunt, is going to uh, our future energy sources, and I mean for the next 50 to 75 years, are going to look a lot like the energy sources that we're using today. They're going to be coal and oil and natural gas primarily. Yeah, of course, with, and we'll get into much, much better technology um, on on many ends of it. I, I was thinking um, recently, just as I've been researching the history of these ideas, and I know. Um, We'll, we'll at least mention, you know, your new book that's that's coming out, smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper. Um, how in and the subtitle is key here. How innovation keeps proving the catastrophes wrong. Uh, obviously, you've done a lot of research on the history of catastrophism, and I've done quite a bit myself. And one thing that strikes me is that when I was when I was born in 1980, um, you know, my parents were told, in essence, we have to get off fossil fuels. Look, they're depleting resources. They're, they're inevitably going to foul up in our environment. And then you had heard, at least on the cooling side, climate change, and that became really big in the mid-80s. And we're being told the same thing today. And yet, if, we had follow, if my parents had actually followed that advice, we'd be in a much worse place. Well, sure, and 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 you know, but this is the as one one uh, investment banker in the in the energy business a long time ago told me. He said the combination of price and innovation are remarkably powerful incentives, uh, and and that that we are now producing enormous quantities of natural gas from shale deposits that just a decade ago or or even less were thought to be uh, uh, completely off limits to oil and gas production. Well, better technology, the, the higher pressure pumps, higher pressure uh, or more sophisticated uh, drill bits, all of these things have combined to unlock resources that we thought were inaccessible just a few years ago. So um, I, I, in my new book, I quote Ad, uh, uh, Abbott Payson Usher, who's a history of, has written about the history of technology, and he just said that, that we, our, our ability to access resources advances with our technologies. So that's what we've seen. This idea, you know, remember that Jimmy Carter, now before you were born, Alex, said, you know, we're, we're running out of oil and gas. We've got to switch to something else. And what did, what did he advocate was switching to coal. So, you know, now, now we're at, a, you know, 40 years later, we're looking at, oh, no, coal is bad. We've got to just use natural gas. So, I mean, you know, these are the fashions of the times, and they come and they go. Um, yeah, well, and I mean, in terms of in terms of intellectually, something that's uh, that's that's persisted for a long time. So going back to to Vietnam, we don't have to take Vietnam in particular, but you mentioned sure. Indonesia and some other countries. 
Talk about concretely. So you talked about electricity usage as a statistic, but I think to most people don't realize what that means for quality of life. So what's as these countries have been using coal, what are what are the impacts on their quality of life? And for sure, include any any negatives, but also positives. Well, look, I mean, the, 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 the simple fact is when you look at any kind of measure of, of human well-being, life expectancy, disease, child mortality, it, it's clear that the countries where electricity use is high, uh, then you have far better standards of living, far better incomes. The essentiality, as I said it a thousand times, I'll say it another thousand times, the essentiality of electricity to modernity is incontrovertible. The, 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 uh, of all of the forms of energy that we consume, the one that is the most powerful, the one that enables us the most, and, and particularly when it comes to any kind of manufacturing, is electricity. You know, you go out, it's, it's remarkable. You go out on a work site somewhere, you know, even guys building a fence out in, you know, out in the country somewhere, and what are they using a lot of times? They'll have a, a, a little portable generator producing electricity because that's what they need to run their drills, their welding machines, their lights. The, you know, it, 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 oil is great, but what oil can be used for, it, 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 obviously, for a thousand different different things from make, making plastics and, and shoelaces, but you can use it to generate electricity. The, the, the electricity is, is it's the 21st, it's the, the, the fire of the 20th and 21st centuries. This was finally, in Edison in 1882 in the Pearl Street Power Plant, got lightning in a bottle and we've had lightning in a bottle ever since and it's it's transformed our civilization so th this is why countries all over the world are turning to developing countries from china to vietnam are turning to coal because they see the value of electricity and they understand the importance of electricity is so incredibly uh, high they can't do without it if they want to transition to anything like a modern economy when these when these countries start using electricity, what are the what tend to be the first needs that they're focused on? Well, lighting. You know, this is the this is always the case. You know, um, and and solar power in certain cases makes in certain locations makes a lot of sense for someone who's living in a rural village in South Asia or in Africa or South America. A couple of solar panels and a small battery and some LED lights. This is transformative. Suddenly, they're, you know, a family with young kids, their kids don't have to stop reading when the sun goes down. They can read at night. They can work at night. The lighting gives them better ability to make handy, you know, to, to manufacture things because you, can, you have better tolerances. I mean, this is a miraculous breakthrough. So, you know, the, the power of electricity isn't necessarily limited just to large-scale coal-fired or nuclear natural gas power plants or even diesel generators. In some cases, it's, it's just very small-scale solar. But the value of that lighting is it, it's immeasurable the ability to conquer darkness that's that's the you know that's been the the challenge for humans ever since they started you know understood fire yeah I and mean, that's that's one that just having grown up in a civilization where that's never been an issue is is it's difficult i mean and i think in some sense impossible to fully relate to what it's like cuz you know you go camping or something but even then you have a flashlight sure but you know, I, I, I've interviewed uh, acquaintances of mine, a, a good friend of mine from my, you know, my uh, when I grew up and grew up in Tulsa. I was talking to his dad. I mean, this is just a few months ago, and he grew up on a farm outside of Venita, Oklahoma, and he could re remember. And he's read my books, and we're, you know, he's a great, you know, he's a great old guy. He said he could remember the very day when they got electricity on their farm. He said it was unbelievable to him. It was just, it was so incredible. And for growing up with kerosene lights his whole life, suddenly he had an inexhaustible supply of light. Another friend of mine, Bill Fisher, who's a, a, a geologist at the University of Texas here in Austin, he was in the, he's, an, he's even older than Ron Cawthon, the man I was just speaking of, and he grew up in, in rural Illinois, and he said the same thing. He said, suddenly I could read at night, and I didn't have to worry about running out of kerosene or running out of fuel oil. <clears throat> he said, I could read all I wanted at night. And, it, and, it was, and he went on to get his Ph.D. and become a <clears throat> widely known uh, geologist. But, I mean, these are people that are living today in America who can remember what electrification did for their lives is that when they were children. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the only thing I think people might be able to relate to is just imagining that, you know, it's the equivalent of, of 
you're, you know, you're reading on your iPhone or something, but there's no outlet. It's just whatever battery you have. And then, uh, I mean, that's sort of the equivalent of if you're out of kerosene running out, but yeah, this, I, the idea of inexhaustible that I find that clarifying in terms of, of how part of, so it's not just the, the form of energy, but it's, it's just that, that you just can keep getting more whenever you want it as a consumer. Yeah. I mean, and that's the part that's just truly astounding. We have these plugs and we put them in the wall and we could run our television or our washing machine or whatever in theory forever. And it's it just, it's, we, it, it is such an incredibly transformative idea about what energy is and the, the incredible power of electricity to transform lives. Um, I, I talk about it in my next book. I talk about, you know, what this meant for industry. Whereas, you know, before you had manufacturers, they had to line up their machines based on a one prime mover, either a steam, uh, a single steam engine, or, you know, might have several, but they were working on, sha- on shafts and belts and pulleys. Or if they were using a, a water wheel, same kind of layout. So the the, manu- the 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 whole process of manufacturing was dependent on this linear kind of uh, model of a shaft, and then everything had to revolve around the shaft. Once you had electricity, the the whole industrial complex could be disaggregated into different parts based on what was most efficient and what made mo- the most sense for the workers in terms of you know ease of handling and 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 and, and production uh, demand. So it, 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 you know it, we take electricity for granted, and uh, I understand why because now it's cheap, abundant, reliable. But it is such a transformative form of energy that you know, that's the part that I mean, frankly, just drives me crazy when we talk about the issue of climate change and global warming and Al Gore had a piece in the New York Times yesterday and we have to do something about climate change. Okay, fine. Mr. Vice President, tell me slowly what you're going to do in Africa where all these people are still living in the dark. Are you going to tell them they can't use coal? I mean, take your stat, your, your entire rants about the, uh, you know, the atmosphere is open sewer and everything else. Take it to the next step. What are you going to do? That's the key question, and that's the one that the Green left and Al Gore and Bill McKibben and all the rest of that crowd never want to answer. And I find it just uh, uh, it's frustrating and, all, and at certain points just kind of silly. Yes. So one, I think that leads into the issue. Um, so there's there's an issue of we don't appreciate electricity and, and energy more broadly. And I've been thinking lately how usually that manifests itself in not appreciating the issue of price. So you'll often hear these schemes and someone will say, oh, I figured out like you know, Jacobson at Stanford saying, oh, I figured out a way to make it work to use all solar. Now, I think he's full of it. He couldn't, I mean, I don't think he could make a town work, but that nevertheless, a lot of the issue is, is can people actually afford it? And that's, of course, why people use coal, because that's an affordable source of, of you know, powerful, sure. reliable energy. And yet that, it's that very thing that's that's demonized as an addiction. You know, we're addicted to cheap fossil fuels. And the number one solution in our civilization is let's make all energy more expensive via CO2 tax. So can you talk about just the value of cheapness in energy? Well, of course. I mean, this is this is the key driver. I mean, it, it's we we it, it, it would be interesting to see if what we had some of these same people that are saying, oh well, let's put make energy more expensive. Okay, well then why don't you argue for more expensive food, and see you know that's the, the direct corollary here. You want to make food more expensive? Why? Oh, so people will eat less. Well, what if they're hungry already? I mean, that's the part that I just find it, it, it's, it, it's, it's of a piece. So you have a, a village in Africa, or even in some cases whole countries in Africa. Remember, the, on a rough basis, the entire continent of Africa, a billion people, use about the same amount of electricity as 35 million Canadians. So a, a billion people relative to 35 million Canadians. So you're going to go to those billion people, the vast majority of whom are uh, uh, dr- drastically underserved when it comes to electricity or gasoline or diesel fuel, and you're going to say, oh, we're going to raise the cost of your energy even though you don't have enough because we think it's going to be good for you. I'm sorry, what? I, you know, I, I you're mad. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. I just, I, I see it very fundamental. You're mad. These people don't have enough energy. You know, it just, it, it to, to say it's it, more expensive energy is a net positive. Well, it, you can you can argue that in in wealthy countries, perhaps you know, go to Switzerland, Luxembourg, you know, uh, maybe the Netherlands, you know, Western Europe. Okay, you can say, oh well, this is good for you. 
Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm adamantly uh, 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 a proponent of cheap, abundant, reliable, and in that order. Cheap, abundant, reliable. Well, and, and abundant, I mean, cheap and abundant, I mean, you know, with the market and supply and demand, those are completely inextricable, you know, particularly cheap, sure. cheap and, and abundant. I think that's, that's, and I think the food example is, is great because, yeah, you don't, and of course, but with energy, it would be making everything more expensive. And the, the thing, though, you, you refer to this, um, to the state of affairs in Africa, and I think that's one powerful set of examples that uh, I think you and, and some others have popularized in uh, just the issue of, of energy poverty and the awareness. One other issue, though, that I think you've done a lot with is just the value of energy to progress as such. And I'm looking for a quote that uh, Amory Lovins had from pretty famous 1977 interview and, and a lot of his stuff. And essentially, he said, we are in 1977, we already we don't need any more electric power plants because we already use twice as much electricity. And Paul uh, Ehrlich and John Holdren, I believe Holdren too, said, yeah, Lovin said, we don't need any more big electric generating stations in 77. We already have about twice as much electricity as we can use to advantage. And uh, Ehrlich and Holdren said, except in special circumstances, all construction of power generating facilities should cease immediately and power companies should be forbidden to encourage people to use more power. Power is too cheap. It should certainly be made more expensive and perhaps rationed in order to reduce its frivolous use. Boy, am I glad we didn't do that. <laughs> well, but you see this throughout, and this is the... Look, I, I, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not Dr. Pangloss here. I'm not uh, arguing in any way that uh, that resources are are infinite. They're not. But this idea that that we're going to appoint somebody such as Amory Levins or John Holdren or Ehrlich or whoever to ration our access to energy, again, are you crazy, man? I mean, but we heard this throughout the '70s. This was a very common idea. We're we're limited. We don't have enough. Well, the human ingenuity is really boundless, and the idea that we're using too much, I mean, this is the, but it goes to the heart of the Jevons paradox, this idea that, oh, you know, if we, we become more efficient, we'll use less energy. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, it may, it, 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 the Jevons paradox may ultimately prove wrong in the wealthy countries like the United States now, where people are sated. We have enough of pretty much everything, so we're using less. We're maybe moving to smaller homes or whatever, but that's a choice. I mean, you tell somebody in Africa that they're, you know, oh, you just need to be more efficient when they're using maybe a thousand kilowatt hours a year. Yeah, if that, oh, you're, you know, you need LED lights. Well, wait a minute, LED light costs ten bucks, an incandescent costs a dime or fifty cents. You're telling me I have to buy a bulb that's ten, ten times more expensive than the one that I'm using now because it's good for me? I mean, you know, this is crazy. I want to push, I want to push just on the, um, so for those who don't know, Jevons paradox, you, I think he, I don't know if he discusses it in the coal question, but this is, there's this discussion about energy efficiency just for, for listeners that is effectively, there's this assumption that oh, if, a, if cars become more fuel efficient, then we'll use less gasoline. And then part of the Jevons paradox is no, well, once that be, once it becomes cheaper to use gasoline, people may use more gasoline, or more people will use gasoline-powered cars. And um, you know, for me, I, I agree 100%. The issue is is choice, and I don't think there's any any absolute relationship. But what I think of, what bugs me, or more than that, about the current discussion, is that there's this assumption that we already use enough or too much energy, and yet w back in '77, given electricity usage, Lovins had. A, you know, a certain amount of plausibility and that people had no idea a computer revolution is coming. So what if there's a laser revolution coming or a water desalination revolution? That's exactly why I, I don't, if we need to use a hundred times more energy in, in a hundred years, I'd say that would mean that we've become a lot more uh, productive. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I, I think, you know, desalination, a perfect example. Look at what's happening in California now. I mean, this is really getting serious. And, you know, we're, we're in a drought in Texas. So uh, we shouldn't use any more electricity. Well, what if we need more electricity to produce enough fresh water so we can continue living? Oh, well, maybe that's okay then, even though the, these these prognosticators have already told us we're using too much. Uh, look, go to Times Square in New York. Uh, you know, I imagine if all of the bulbs and all of the, the, the lighting elements there were the same efficiency today as they were, you know, 30 years ago, and they were all using incandescents. They're not. They're using enormous LED displays. 
and the, the and LEDs are far more efficient than the old lights. And what's happened? Instead of cutting the use of the number of lights, they've just added more lights. Uh-huh. I mean, this is well, this is prime example in, in retail. This is how retailing works, right? You want to make something attractive, you light it up. Oh, the lights got the the light bulbs got cheaper, and I can run more lights less expensively. Well, I'm going to add some more lights because I've got to compete with the store next door. I mean, this is. This, I mean, this is easily seen just in going into, you know, any essentially any retail establishment. This is the way they operate. Yeah, and I think I think the the distinction between those who are true proponents of innovation who get excited about any efficiency, including energy efficiency, assuming it's economic, it's just there's this stark difference between the advocates of real advocates of efficiency and then the advocates of deficiency. And that's what I take McKibben and Lovins, et cetera. They just want us to use less. It's not that they want us to get more from less. They just want us to use less. Yeah, and, 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 and that's the part that I think you know, should be of concern to pretty much anyone who is a, a fan of, of human liberty. I, oh, that someone else is going to decide if I'm using too much or if I'm, you know, if I had a boat, if I'm, I'm driving my boat too much or I have a motorcycle or a snowblower or, you know, or I'm, I'm trimming my, my hedges too much with my power trimmer. Well, I like a nice, neat lawn or yard. I mean, who gets to decide? This is the part that I think is really a slippery slope. And when you read some of these proponents of degrowth, and Holdren was one of them, and Ehrlich is another. Um, you know, this is the kind of big brother. When you when you boil a lot of what they're saying down, you, this is the kind of big brother attitude that they're promoting. That someone should be the arbiter here to decide how much we're allowed to use. Well, you know, I don't have the optimum number of shoes in my closet or optimum number of trees in my yard. I'm sure someone else would come in and say you have too many. Well, well I may have too many, but this is the number that I like. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm interested. Has this? Uh, um, I haven't read as uh, this is, uh, I think, a great angle. Is this something you've been focused on more lately in terms of just the conflict between the doomsayers and and human liberty? I'm sorry, say again. I'm, oh, I'm, oh, it I'm just seems sure like I... I was just asking if if this has been a, a more like an increasing emphasis in your work or in your thinking about the conflict between the doomsayers and human liberty because I think it's an important one, but I don't hear it that often. No, it's not something that you hear that often, but I think that if you look at at a lot of what the catastrophists are saying, there is implicit in a lot of what they're saying is this desire to have some kind of a uh, uh, some you know a, a watchdog that gets to decide, you know, whether we're using too much energy, whether our energy is too cheap, and you know who gets to decide. You know, you even see it honestly. It's, it just occurs to me that. Now we're having this uh, uh, enormous increase in oil and natural gas production. Well, then there has become from primarily from the left, although it's not just been the left, but there's been some from the you know big uh, energy users here and some domestic energy users here in the U.S. Oh, we need to restrict exports now of our hydrocarbons. We need to keep that's our oil. Right. Well, just a few years ago, you had the same you know a lot of the same people saying, oh no, we need to uh, decrease imports of, of oil because that's their oil, and we need to use more of our energy, and that was the justification for the corn ethanol scammers. So you know, any time that there's it, 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 people speak up and they're they're wanting to limit somehow the operation of the market and exports, imports, price, you know, it, it, it becomes a very slippery slope as to whose interests are really being served. One aspect of this that I, I liked, I, re- I remember this pretty distinctively, even though it was, I think Power Hour started in 2011, so this is three years ago. You you would use the example a lot of enjoying a cold beer. And the thing I like about, as a, as a good use of energy, the thing I like about that is just the focus on the pursuit of happiness, which is almost completely absent, I think, even from both sides of the energy debate. And yet, why are you know why are we living in the first place so that we can do things that that we enjoy and and part of what i find morally objectionable about all of this is that that my, the actions that i take with energy to pursue my happiness are regarded as morally unimportant or or excessive or even bad yes i mean there's a similar point right that that oh we're using too much right that's the thing that you know, we're, we're addicted to fossil fuels. We're using too much. We're, and this is a line that we've heard repeatedly. It's interesting, the politics of it, that this addicted to fossil fuels or addicted to oil in particular. This is a, a line that came out of 
the um, the the, uh, the national security crowd, the, the James Woolsey and some of his cohorts saying, "Oh, you know, we're we're, we're that dangerous oil, that dangerous." Um, uh, 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 energy source because oh it's produced by the Saudis or the Venezuelans who or whoever else. Well, it's it, this connotation that somehow are enjoying our lives or somehow that oh we or we took a we we went on vacation we drove to the Grand Canyon oh we're using more than our allowable allotment of of gasoline and therefore we're bad because we wanted our kids to see the you know the one of the great wonders of the world i mean you know where, where does that stop i mean it, I, I, I i don't want to make too much of this but i but it, but it is fundamentally when you look at some of these arguments being put forward it gets as i said before a very slippery slope as to who gets to decide how i live my life yeah, and his, his I think I'm, I think I'm the best. I think I'm the best arbiter of that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, uh, I think we. I'll, I'll give you yours, and you give me mine, and, and everyone will be good. Uh, yeah, I mean, the I think one thing that throughout intellectual history and political history is that that what they're always what the people who want to control you are always looking for is a claim that well we're so interrelated that nobody can be allowed to do their own thing. So the idea that oh well since we're all contributing, you know, this amount of CO2 and it's allegedly a catastrophe, um, although none of our models work, then, you know, th therefore, so it's just, I think it's instructive that, that that's, that they're always, that they're always using these, it's all, it's, there's a different sort of collective problem, but it's always, oh, we're, you know, we're all, we're all in this together. That's, that's usually, that usually seems to be uh, the focus behind, therefore, you're not allowed to do what you choose, right? But, um, but I mean, how? I mean, uh, Colin Karl Marx. Yeah, well, <laughs> he he believed I mean, that. He believed that too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the implicit. Once you you know, okay, well, you keep going down that line just a little further. Oh well, then we're all in this together. Well, then let's all work together collectively on the farm, and we'll produce all for each other and. You know, I, look, if people want to live in cooperatives and, you know, and raise some chickens and, you know, buy a con Dios, make yourself happy. That's good for you, but don't tell me that's what I have to do with my life. That's not, I don't, I don't, I don't like chickens. I don't want to deal with chickens. I want to mess with that. <laughs> that that'll, that'll be the takeaway quote from this show. Robert Bryce says, I, I don't like chickens. <laughs> I don't like chickens. I like I my eggs. I love eggs, but I don't want to have to, you would <laughs> never mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Go on. laughs> okay. Um, all right, so let's let's. Um, I want to circle back to the the beginning, just the discussion of coal. I love discussing coal because it is even among the advocates of of fossil fuels in the U.S., coal is considered something that's that's we shouldn't talk about or we should shy away from. And and sure, like globally speaking, I think if you are doing anything to discourage coal, you're telling a bunch of people to go to hell and really die uh, pre prematurely. So I want to talk about though. Um, innovation in coal over over the last 30 years because we've been taught to think of innovation usually purely in terms of solar and wind and yet in my understanding there's been a lot of innovation in coal technology on both the production and on the, the filtration slash pollution reduction end in the past couple decades well there's no question about that i mean you look at the at the prairie state energy campus in southern illinois this is a state-of-the-art facility now it, let's get clear though here this is not they're not using carbon capture and sequestration they haven't solved the carbon dioxide issue they're still emitting a lot of carbon dioxide but it's a very clean uh, uh, plant in terms of traditional air pollutants um, the, the, the plants emissions easily meet cross-state air pollution rules mercury rules etc um, it's a mine mouth coal-fired power plant uh, 1600 megawatts the problem it cost about five billion dollars it was an extremely expensive project now could it would it be a little less expensive now well perhaps because of the time they bought the you know the steel and so on for the project it was fairly high and so on but but the reality is that coal combustion technology has improved dramatically over the last couple of decades we've gone from regular pulverized coal to supercritical and ultra supercritical designs that are getting more power out of the same amounts of energy um, so this combustion side, no question, dramatic improvements have come at significant cost in terms of the building of the plants and so on, the pollution controls, but nevertheless, combustion side, incredible improvements. 
But what about on the other side of the coin, which is the production side, the, the, the productivity of these open-cast mines, and I don't know if any of you or, or, if you or any of your listeners have been to the Powder River Basin, but some of these coal, uh, coal uh, plants, or rather the, the coal mines in Wyoming, are stunningly productive. I mean, stunningly productive. I went to one, the Peabody uh, North Antelope Shell Mine, and that one mine by itself could supply nearly all of the coal for electricity production in Mexico. I mean, this is just staggering productivity that that they're achieving in some of these uh, in some of these strip mines, and it's uh, uh, that's reduced costs. Um, yeah, and that's so I mean, it's so exciting to just think about. I mean, for people who care about efficiency, because you're making you're, you're using the land more efficiently, you're using people's time more efficiently, then you're getting more efficiency at the production end, and then um, and sort of everyone is focused on okay, how efficient is my dishwasher? But what about what if the power plant is 30% more efficient? I mean, that's that's amazing. That means everyone's dishwasher, no matter what, is more efficient. Absolutely. And that's where a lot of work is going now to uh, upgrading some of these nuclear plants to get you know more productivity out of the same amount of inputs. Um, and, yeah, and that, you know, it's great. That's a good point. I've never really thought about it that way. If you increase the, the productivity of the, of the power plant by a few percentage points, you've increased the productivity of the entire, every user around the power plant. That, that's, a, that's a powerful, that's a very interesting way to, to think about that, that kind of a concept. And, and I don't know, I haven't done these numbers myself, but if you, I, I've heard it said, but it does make a certain amount of sense when you're given, given the huge quantity of electricity that we produce from coal, um, it's roughly 40% of global electricity production comes from coal. That if you just ring, a, you know, one or two more points of efficiency out of that huge quantity, you know, huge number of terawatt hours of electricity that are being produced, you'd easily surpass the amount of electricity that we currently derive from wind and solar. Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking about the. Um, thinking of the, yeah, I hadn't thought too much about that efficiency point. It just just occurred to me. Um, yeah. Off the off the top of my head, but it is. I'm just thinking of why. I mean, besides the fact that that fossil fuels are, are demonized, does this not come up in discussions? And I think part of it might be just that. I mean, because really, if if you think about somebody's energy efficiency and people being committed to quote energy efficiency, it's usually some combination of buying overly expensive stuff, buying some decent stuff, and then um, not paying at all attention to overall consumption, just, just consuming away and then feeling good because I have a green bottle. And yet whatever is being done, the coal company being more efficient, it, like they're the, they would be the ones to really thank and to celebrate versus the person usually doing something fairly PC uh, or marginal. So it's just, it's very unfair that they're not given credit. Huh. Well, yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but yeah, we, oh, the Prius owner, they're so, they're, they're, they're so, uh, uh, you know, holy or they're so, you know, they're so virtuous. Well, what about the refinery that now is deriving, you know, they're getting one or two more gallons per barrel of gasoline out of that same barrel that, you know, five years ago they were getting, uh, you know, we'll say 30, 30 gallons. Now they're getting 31 or 32 gallons. And by the way, that same refinery is processing 150,000 barrels a day. Well, that's real productivity gain that, um, yes, the refiner may make more money, but he's competing against a whole lot of other refiners. But that, you know, that relatively small productivity gain at the producer, at the manufacturer level, is ultimately far more important to the overall economy than that somewhat little smaller reduction in consumption at the at the individual consumer level. Yeah, and, and I, I imagine uh, often more economic. I mean, uh, Pierre Durocher has been on the show a couple of times. He's talked to me a lot about just different kinds of recycling and when recycling makes sense and when it doesn't. And it's almost always it makes sense at the producer level where you're dealing with with huge amounts of material that you can aggregate and separate and then it then it's then you're turning as you would say waste into wealth and it's there's an analogy i think to how decentralized power works where if you have a large centralized power plant you can invest in the best efficiency technologies the best filtration technologies because you have it's all together versus say you know a single internal combustion engine yeah you can invest in it but it's more expensive so i wonder that Overall, I think if your focus were efficiency, my guess is that pe that there would be more focus at the center versus at the usage points, at least in terms of where you invest your dollar. That's speculation, but it's interesting. It's only discussed one place at the usage sure. point. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, 
sure. And I mean, it just a you know quick comment on the Prius. You know, I bought a car now. It's a year and a half ago or so. But you know, it was it the most efficient vehicle on the lot. No. But again, I didn't buy. I didn't. Efficiency was one of only several different calculuses that are, or, or or points or, or or factors that rather that I I was considering when I bought it. I wanted a car that looked good. I wanted a car that you know could had four doors. It could hold all my you know my whole family. I, you know I wanted something that I would enjoy driving. And so it wasn't the most efficient car on the market, but it was the one that I wanted. Well, and and I'd even push back on the on how we use efficient. I've written a couple of articles about this, but you know efficient is getting more with less. And the question is more of what? You always have a standard of value. What are you after? Now, I think that what we usually use is efficient just means using less. That's supposed to be an end in itself, which I think it's the opposite of an end in itself. But if the end is happiness, then it's much more efficient. It's definitely not efficient for me to buy Prius because I do not like, no offense to anyone listening, but I do not like the appearance of it. I don't like the associations of it. I don't like the political correct. Like I would be unhappy every day getting into that car. Uh, versus, you know, and that would be a very inefficient use of your gasoline. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. Or just, just for me to have a frown on my face driving down. The, the... But seriously, it's, it's, it's about, I mean, it's really about what is going to help the individual flourish. We're only alive so long. How do we, what can we do to flourish? And it, it, it's one telling aspect of environmentalism is that there's so little focus on human happiness, the emotion that is most uh, activated with environmentalism is is guilt. What are you doing yeah. wrong? Why should you feel bad? But uh, I n- never, never like, oh, I love driving or I love doing this with energy. It's no, you you might need some or you might think you need it, but let's focus this year on doing less. No, how about let's focus on doing more with our lives and that's going to mean being energy efficient in certain ways because then we can do more with the money we have. It's just a totally opposite perspective. Yeah, it, it is interesting that, that, and and I agree with the point you're making, and, and I, it's a point that I made in Power Hungry, where I even reproduced one of the articles that Chevron, I'm sorry, it's an advertisement Chevron published in a number of places around the country, and uh, this is several years ago, but it had a picture of a guy, and said, "I will use less energy." I hate that and one. This is, this is Chevron, and I and I just made the point in the book. Oh, I will. Here's an energy company saying I will use less energy. So, when is Ford or General Motors going to start running advertisements to say, you know, my old junker car is just fine. I'm going to drive less, or I'm going to buy fewer cars, or Microsoft <laughs> saying you don't really need our software. I mean, I'm going to imagine, but this is how deeply this idea of guilt that you brightly point out, how deeply pervasive it is in our culture and how it was even adopted by one of the world's biggest energy companies to say, oh, we're going to use less energy. I'm sorry, what? I mean, <laughs> this is your business. And you're saying, well, let's use less. I mean, are you crazy, man? And it's a universal, <laughs> I mean, it's even worse because it's a universal business. That is, it's, you know, with other things you can say, okay, there's, in a sense, in a business can say, okay, this is really the maximum amount like, you know, if you're a homeowner, you might not need 18,000 shares. So we're not going to try to sell you like after a thousand shares. I'm just looking at a chair right now. That's why that, but energy is a universal value. So like Chevron saying that is like saying I pledge to, we pledge to not be as healthy or something like that. Or we pledge, or I pledge to make less money. That's what it means. I pledge to be less prosperous because that's what energy is. It's, it's an enabler. So I plus, I pledge to be less able. Well, I, I pledge to be poor. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's get let's get a billion Africans and a bunch, you know, and all of Asia to say I pledge to be poor. We'll solve the carbon dioxide emissions thing overnight. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the the CO2 emissions are not rising in the developing in the developed world. The rich country CO2 emissions are flat or falling. Why are they rising in the countries that are trying to join the modern world? So if we could just get all those, you know, what, three billion people or more that are now living in energy poverty to just agree that they like being poor, you know, we've we've solved the the CO2 crisis. Uh, Yeah, as long as we don't care about people living. It's fine. (laughs) Well, that's a little stumbling block, Alex. I don't know how we solve that one. Well, environmentalism really amounts to, in modern terms at least, putting environment above human beings so that would be considered a success. Um, 
Now, one, I think one important example, uh, maybe the biggest example in terms of the trends we've been discussing toward modernity, particularly developing countries developing using cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, particularly from coal, is China. What's, what's your sense of the big picture of China and its progress, both the, the good parts and the challenges? I know it's a big question. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's it's funny to me to see politicians and some of these pundits saying, "Oh, China, you know, they're beating us in clean energy, whatever clean energy is. They're 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 really investing. Look at what's happened in China. Let's you know, cut all the crap and go to the heart of the question. China's dramatically and 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 excessively um, subsidized their solar production uh, of solar PV panels. What's happened? Their big solar producers, uh, uh, SunTech, etc., are, are have been crushed in terms of market capitalization." in terms of their revenues, et cetera, they're just getting crushed. Now, the price of, of, of photovoltaic panels, of course, has fallen dramatically, but from a you know, purely economic standpoint, what the Chinese have done on the solar side, it, you know, it makes no sense. Oh, wind? Yes, okay, China's building a lot of wind, but again, infinitesimal compared to the story of China, which is the coal story. You know, there, the, the headlines just a few weeks ago were talking about the fact that now China's going to build another 100 gigawatts of new coal-fired capacity. That's 100,000 megawatts. The United States has 300,000 megawatts of coal-fired capacity, and China's planning on building a, another 100,000 at least. I mean, you know, this is... Uh, uh, look, I, you know, everybody hears it, and, and, you know, that's what China needs to do. But if you step back and say, okay, well, what's the big political picture? I'm not really concerned about China. China has so many problems uh, with their environment, with their demographics, and, and frankly, with the amount of coal that they're using, that uh, uh, I, I think that there really are, the energy is, energy is, their, is, their, is their biggest problem, and I don't see how they overcome it. What you, what do you mean? You don't see how they overcome it? Well, I don't see how they overcome their their over reliance on coal. I'm not opposed to coal, but what what China is seeing uh, with their excessive reliance on coal are are really huge pollution problems. And I don't see how they overcome it. I mean, you know, look at what's happened in Beijing, where the air, uh, my neighbor, in fact, was just in Shanghai the other day, uh, and he said the pollution was so bad that uh, he he was sick when he left the city. That the the air quality was was dreadful. And this is a serious limiter in terms of economic growth. And, and so I, I think that, you know, China, for all of its values, you know, for all of its, its, its rapid growth and everything else, I think that they, they are really facing some serious problems with regard to energy availability um, and the pollution that, that honestly is coming from their excessive reliance on coal. They may want to diversify, but they're really stuck, in, in my view. I guess I don't understand how that's inherent in, in using coal versus the way in which they're doing it because, you know, they don't use as much per, I mean, there are places in the U S that use, uh, coal exclusively that, ha that use more electricity per person than China, certainly. And that, that don't have these issues. I mean, I guess a lot could be done in terms of where the things are located, particularly what technologies they're using at least yeah. long-term. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it may, I, I'm, I'm no expert on, you know, this is all just kind of at my, you know, far removed level. I'm hoping to go to China this fall, but you know, the stories I read that they're over-reliance on solid fuels, I think, and, and you know, some of these air pollution problems may well be caused, are, are clearly being caused by inefficient combustion. And whether that's small power plants or even, you know, people in their homes using coal-fired stoves or whatever, it's this air quality problem. It's a serious, serious ag uh, 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 hindrance to economic growth, ultimately. And so, you know, China is investing heavily in nuclear. There was just a big discovery of natural gas in the Sichuan Basin, uh, multiple trillions of cubic feet of natural gas. Um, but, you know, these investments that they're making in, on, in coal make sense for them now. I'm not arguing that point of it, but it's, it, they're going to be hooked into coal for decades to come, and I, I, I really think that this could be ultimately a, a major stumbling block for China as it goes forward. And further, I mean, frankly, uh, a lot of this mercury that's coming out of that now is being spread around the world, a lot of this is, being com is coming from Chinese uh, coal-fired power plants, and uh, you know, we can argue about the, 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 the problems with carbon dioxide and so on, or, you know, whether it's a problem, but mercury is a neurotoxin, and I, I don't think anyone is going to stand up and say, you know, give us more mercury. So, I, I mean, that is a concern. Yeah, although, well, we've not, 
I mean, mercury is a whole issue because of just in terms of what are the natural, what are what's the ratio of natural versus man-made, and the stats I've sure. seen are usually that's more. Also, the difference between mercury and methyl mercury, and it, anyway, that that um, people can look that up, and when we come out with something, I'll announce it on hour. But uh, okay, so let's. I mean, my my, my sense, and I'm gonna the chapter I'm going to write next week is going to cover China. So I'm going to do some more research on it, you know, after we talk, but I'm, I'm my, my sense is particularly whenever you're dealing with a dictatorship or a place that's not free is that the way, even if it does something that has many, many benefits, there are going to be many rights violations done along with it that would not be sure. done in say North Dakota or Kentucky or West Virginia, where people could protest as it happened versus sort of erecting these things and either using low quality coal or having low standards or, um, so yeah, my, my sense is that, I mean, there has to be a way to do it a lot better than they've done it, but it's also, as far as I've seen, you know, their overall quality of life is still going up and looking back at, at us history. I mean, we had a lot of times where cities were not places we would want to live in today. And by times, I mean, a hundred years ago, even in terms of what was in the air and yet, quality of life is going up in part because the things you mentioned earlier about the basic things we get from electricity in terms of refrigeration and lighting are so, so valuable that people are willing to put up with more. Whereas when you get advanced enough, you don't have to have that trade-off. Agreed. And I think this is going to be China's big challenge is that, you know, managing that coal combustion and cleaning up those emissions, because right now they're, you know, they're industrializing so fast, they're urbanizing so quickly that, that, value of electricity is so high that I think they, you know, that some of these these issues and they're hard ones that they're going to put them off. So, um, you know, my my view on China is, yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly a rising power, but I still think that their 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 big stumbling block is going to be access to energy to continue growing their economies. They don't produce enough of their own oil. They have tiny, relatively tiny production of natural gas. And you know, natural gas is the is the it's it's the queen of the hydrocarbons. I mean, this is the you know it burns the cleanest. Um, it, it, uh, they're, they're, in a lot of the cities in 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 China, they're they're switching over to natural gas uh, fueled buses, not because they uh, are uh, well, partly because it's lower cost generally than diesel, but also because of their concerns for air quality. So. Um, you know, I, 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 relative to the United States and energy policy, uh, the Chinese are are behind the eight ball. Got it. All right. Last last topic, which I'll try to do quickly, but I, I need to ask you about this since uh, you're the first person who's in really gusher of lies. I learned the most about this from the, just the whole so-called renewables movement. But, you know, renewables really means in these days unreliable solar and wind. What, you know, the, uh, if we take the news, it's, oh, these are, as you mentioned, PV prices of panels at least have gone down uh, for reasons that are involved. But what has I mean the overall thing since you know Jevons wrote about this years ago is dilute intermittent power is not effective and has these fundamental problems. Has anything substantially changed in that respect? Not that I can see. You know, I look back now. It's six years since I wrote Gusher of Lies. It's four years since I published Power Hungry. And in all of that time, I think, and I don't see this with any braggadocio, you know, I'm, I'm happy about it, but nothing has changed in that time. Nothing has changed in terms of, look, we, the, the, the energy density of the wind hasn't, or the power density of the wind has not increased. The, 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 the force of the amount of sunlight falling on the earth has not increased. These are constants. These are fixed numbers. The power density of wind energy is one watt per square meter, period. End of story. Elvis has left the building. That's it. You can't get there from here. I just did a quick calculation on the San Onofre plant in, in California, right? It's the nuclear uh, generation station, Songs, uh, San Onofre uh, nuclear generation station. They're going to close it. Well, um, it produces... Uh, 2,200 megawatts of uh, electricity, and so it sits on a, on a piece of property that's less than one square kilometer. Well, if you wanted to replace that San Onofre with wind energy, you'd need a land area the size of Sacramento County. I mean, you know, it just doesn't work. And, you know, forget about the intermittency problem. The issue is land use, and that's where biofuels and wind, and I go straight at them in my next book. 
you know, that this, if we're going to have, if we're going to be serious, <clears throat> we've got to get serious about energy policy. And what we have to do is get serious and, 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 and move past this fad of wind energy and biofuels. They don't work, and they don't work because of basic physics and math. It's not about religious belief or climate change or anything else. They just simply don't work because their power density is too low. It's physics, man. It's not anything else. Physics, man, is a dangerous expression. That's what McKibben uses all the time for his all of his uh, prognostications of, of okay, doom. Well, okay, those are untrue. It's just basic physics. Well, but so that's interesting what you said about land versus intermittency, because my inclination would be, I mean, intermittency is harder to solve than than land. I mean, if if you could add some amount of land that was super super cheap, I mean, there's there's no baseload. Uh, solar and wind. I mean, it's just you ha that you have this yeah. backup problem and it's, it's really, really, I don't, it's just no, this that's, horrible a, that's a fair thing. point. And, 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 okay, I'll, I'll, I'll dial it back a little bit. I, okay. So yeah, I, I focus uh, largely on the, on the, on the, the physics because of the, you know, it, it, that is for, I think for the general public far easier to understand, right? You, you know, when you say oh, replacing coal fired generation in the United States with wind, we need a land area the size of Italy. When I start, you know, and, and I, but I fully uh, understand, and I, I'm not arguing your point on intermittency at all, but to get people to understand, well, you know, you have baseload power and you have intermittent resources and you have, you know, that, that people need electricity when they need it. So just to, to very quickly to that point, what's happening in Germany now? Well, uh, as I wrote in this recent report I did for Manhattan Institute, um, they've relied heavily, invested over $100 billion in solar and wind uh, since 2000, and yet now what are they having to do? They're having to pay natural gas-fired generation owners to stay open because they realize that they, you know, for all of this investment in renewables, they still have to have reliable, conventional generation available, and if they don't, the lights go off. So the punchline here, Alex, is that so the consumers in Germany are paying twice. They're paying to subsidize the renewables, and they're paying, again, to subsidize the conventional generation. So they lose twice. Yeah. Um, where, can, where can listeners, as we wrap up, where can listeners find that report? The report is on the Manhattan Institute's website. It's manhattan-institute.org. Uh, they can also look at my website. I, I don't have that report on my website yet. I'll put it up there, but that's my website is robertbryce.com. Um, all right, Robert, any any final thoughts on this, on innovation, on anything else you want to enlighten us with? Well, I, you know, I guess my you know my final point, and I think I'm, I'm you and I are in the same same uh, same boat here. Is I'm incredibly optimistic as we go forward for all of the. Uh, the hand wringing for all of the the dystopian views of the future, for all of these worries about you know fossil fuel use and so on. The reality is things are getting better, and if we're facing a world that where we have a change in the climate, uh, either you know more extreme in one direction or the other, what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to use more energy in order to stay productive and comfortable. And so I'm bullish on the future, extraordinarily so. Yeah, as long as listeners, that doesn't discourage you from from fighting on these things. I mean, I'm bullish particularly about the potential for the future, and bullish about the things that people are are bearish on. I'm considerably more worried about what the bears intend to do uh, to us. Um, but even there, I think I don't think there's anything negative that's inevitable. But you know, as you you show in your book, you know McKibben, whom both of us have have been on a stage with, that you show you have a graphic of the McKibben plan and. I'll just leave it at buy the book and you'll see it's a scary graphic. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right, Robert. Thanks for coming on. Okay, great. Thanks, Alex. All right. Not surprisingly, we went a little bit long with Robert Bryce. Thanks again to Robert for being uh, on the show. I, you know, as, as you can tell, I had a lot of questions for him. And writing a book, it's always great to have access to someone like that because he knows he knows so much valuable information. Uh, I'll just say one thing that I, I like about Robert Bryce in, in particular, and that was helpful to me. Well, I guess two things that are related. That was helpful to me when I first got a, got started writing about energy, uh, starting getting get a, getting fairly well known. Excuse me, fairly well known at, at uh, in the energy space. Um, and I'd say the two things are enthusiasm and storytelling. You can tell that 
Robert has a genuine enthusiasm for the subject. And I think part of that is he has a journalism background. I don't think that he thought it would be his mission in life, purpose in life to write about energy. In fact, I'm certain that's not, that wasn't this master plan. His major books on energy came uh, in, in his 40s, I think. Uh, but And part of that is, I think going as a journalist and choosing energy, part of the reason why one would choose and part of the reason why I became enthusiastic is just because you, you see how powerful this is, no pun intended, in human life. You think, wow, people don't know this. They don't know how valuable energy is, and they have no idea how it really works, what, what really causes cheap energy. And in fact, many of the things that we are considering doing and are told are the moral thing to do would be absolutely disastrous. And there are many other things that might not, that people would say, oh, that's, that's bad, like using more fossil fuels that would make the world a lot better place, such as what's happened in the last 30 years, you know, particularly in, in uh, India and China. And, and of course, as you can tell, he's not, he doesn't, uh, he's not evading at all challenges, but you, you can still acknowledge challenges or even serious problems and be enthusiastic about the endeavor as such and be enthusiastic about the power of technology to deal with things. And that was also something we talked about last week with Steve Hayward. Uh, you know, the, the necessity or, or, or the propriety of having a technological solution-oriented attitude toward life and toward problems versus a, if there's something wrong, our first impulse is let's, let's stop what we're doing, let's retract it, and then let's retreat into some fantasy and then do that. And then if we try to execute the fantasy, either it bombs or if it works, then we'll find something wrong with the fantasy. Like if we build all these windmills, we'll find, oh, yeah, it's taking a lot of fossil fuels to build them. And there's all sorts of environmental damage with all the mining and there's all these disposal issues and, oh, they degrade faster. And a lot of those are, are you know, legitimate concerns. Some of them are reasons why it's not, not economic, not a good idea. But uh, yeah, the, the technology, the pro-technology approach is necessary, and I think it's much rarer than people think. The fact that you have an iPhone or an iPad and like it does not make you pro-technology. What makes you pro-technology is to have a positive view of man using his mind to transform uh, the world around him. And so there's that enthusiasm, and, and I think the pro-technology philosophy behind it, and if you when you read uh, Robert's new book, which we'll, we'll announce when it, it comes out, I think it comes out in May, uh, he has a very strong enthusiasm for technology as such. And you know, as part of that, and as part of that, there is, uh, he has a, a focus on telling stories of individual technologies, of individuals. And that is also part of being a technological enthusiast to because you can't be, there is no such thing as technology. Technology is just a way of characterizing a whole bunch of discrete things that improve human life uh, through certain mechanisms in, in a certain way. And thus, when he tells a story, say, in Power Hungry, uh, about visiting a certain coal mine in Kentucky and tells how it works and tells, you know, how this generates almost as much energy as, as all the windmills in the country at the time did, and with the reliability that they've never been able to do, that's that's great stuff. And so every time one of his books comes out, I get excited about the stories, and I hope you enjoyed the stories uh, today. So whether you're thinking of, whether you're, you're an intellectual in the field, which some of our listeners are, or you're just interested in the ideas uh, for yourself and for communicating them to others, I think those are two, two good things to take note of, that, that enthusiasm for technology in general, energy in particular, and then the um, making sure to connect that to lots and lots of specific stories, which will make your own understanding better and which will make you a better communicator. All right, let's see what to promote this week. And as we, as we wrap up, uh, again, just encouraging people, the moral case for fossil fuels will not come out until November 13th. 2014. I'm, I, I'm super excited about it. Uh, I, I was working on it as I talk here. I was working on it. Probably got up at 6:30 and stopped a.m. Worked straight through 12 mid noon with not too much interruption. It's just 
yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to work on. It's a lot of fun to have that time to just just get clear on things. And writing is, I love everything else, speaking, debating, but there's nothing like writing to get the clarity to the next level. And fortunately, with, with a publisher like uh, Penguin slash Portfolio backing the book, now that gives me time to write, and that's been super, super fun. But you can't get that until November, and there are tons and tons of people who need to know about these ideas now, so make sure to get and hand out copies of Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, which you can get at Amazon.com, $5.50 apiece, or you can buy them in bulk at industrialprogress.com store. And you can also buy hard copies of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which uh, it was super, super influential in the energy industry last year. Um, I think if you sort of look slowly at the, if you look at the landscape in 2014, I think you're going to see some much, much better messaging. And that essay, you know, plus our work with companies will have helped contribute to that. So, you know, those two things, they're just, it's just a proven way to change people's minds on those issues. We just get testimonial after testimonial. So, you know, don't get in major arguments on Facebook all the time or just just refer people, and you can also get them at industrialprogress.com in digital form for free, but get those things out. If you work at a company, everybody's got to read it. I mean, there's just no reason why. People will be more motivated. They'll be better ambassadors for the industry. Uh, it's just it's just complete win-win, and the reason why, you know, the reason why I wrote that book is for, is for that purpose, to ha- for people to have something to hand out, for people to have some, to be able to get really good guidance or the best I could provide for very, very little money. It's not like bringing me in as a keynote speaker or consultant or something like that. It's, you know, it's, it's very economic and it's free if you want to uh, do it, do it digitally. So I'm just going to keep pounding away because it's, I know I just have, I have too many examples of person after person saying, wow, this, this book really changed the way I thought. And then that, I think of the book as a magnet. You know, it's like it's it's magnet. It's it's pulling a person's mind. If a person has an active mind, it's it's making them gravitate toward the truth. And if you, so, it for me, it's a magnet to help influence other people in the right direction by again through the truth. It's not manipulation, but it's also like you have a truth magnet as well. You can hand out all these truth magnets at your company, at your community group, um, you know, to your friends and won't work on everyone, but it works on a lot of people, and then they can start handing out the magnets. So this is this is how change happens. All right, so get your truth magnets at, if you go to Amazon.com, uh, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet. You can also pre-order the moral case for fossil fuels. Um, that's, that's available now. And then industrialprogress.com slash store, we will hook you up. Any questions, email support at industrialprogress.net. All right, that's it. For this week, uh, as always, to contact me with questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.